So we're sharing some time together. And uh, with its amazing advantages and, of course, the limitations that um, I can't really know what's happening for each and every one of you individually. Uh, how your week has been, how your day has been, how your life is going. But I trust that if you come into this this room, it's time that you know, you know the sense that you're interested in listening and seeing something, pick up something that uh, some nugget, something that you can take with you. Because we're always really dealing with the mind. It sits behind all things. Um, but this evening, I'd like to open up the topic of how the mind affects speech. And speech is a very um, easy form of action, karma. Once you really understand that uh, speech is karma, is action, and karma has results, and the results are uh, occur in two directions. They affect others, and they affect yourself. And it's good, or bright, skillful, fortunate. Affects others in a skillful way. It gives you a good effect. Shapes you into an honest, kindly, sensible being sensitive, receptive, and it sh shapes others. Then as dark, which means we uh, abuse others' attention, dump unpleasant things into their minds, we become abusive, careless, insensitive. And the speech that leads to the end of Kamba is talking, directing the mind in certain ways that lead to the diminution of our unskillful habits. So what's called the Vipaka, or the old accumulations, cleaned out. Right? It doesn't go down those tracks anymore because... We've understood, we've learnt something about that. And we've turned away from it, or we've seen the fruitlessness of it, we've checked it. So speech is definitely a very easy form of action to undertake. <laughs> yeah. The result of that is that when residual uh, habits cease, then we we don't see people or talk to people in the same way, that means they're affected differently. It also means that we don't use people in the same way. We're not so manipulating or pressurizing or, or dominating people to make ourselves feel better in some way or another, manipulating or pushing or forcing. 
or feeling um, incapable, apologising for our existence, <laughs> which is one form of, of speech that we can use. It always as if it's something, you know, sorry to take up your time. Uh, kind of thing. Why are you so sorry? <laughs> it's a pleasure to exchange time, share time together. So certain habits can 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 cease. It means actually we become a little emptier in ourselves, a little more open, a little less preoccupied with our old habits, our old person, our old, our old selfhood. And so when that disappears, less of that, there's more available space in the mind for clarity, for receptivity, and for skillful qualities to arise. And these skillful qualities, such as clarity and stability and compassion, um, they don't create a self. They're just qualities. Because the space in which they arise is open. The difference between qualities, when they're taken personally, what occurs, we take a particular skill even a skill or a, or a defilement personally the space in the mind contracts it's called clinging a sense of spaciousness in the mind contracts and is a clinging to that phenomenon that for that clinging gives rise to the sense i am this phenomenon because the space has disappeared there's just this it's just the singularity actually with phenomena, there should always be a sense of space and openness to allow things to pass. Then the sense of self is not generated around phenomena. So, so karma ends because the hinge point of karma is it, it creates a self that then is perpetuated. And this leads to further becoming and rebirth. So wouldn't it be beautiful to... Um, act verbally in a way that um, kept us open to act verbally in a way whereby thoughts and impressions could arise in an open state with no particular pressure uh, no contraction and just allowed to arise and move and pass through so that's the ending of it, end of karma. And yet, still, it could be action. And this is, of course, the action of a Buddha, or an enlightened one, or degrees of enlightenment. They can act, but they don't have any karma. In fact, because they're not acting from a personal basis, from a basis of history and acquisitions, and habits, they're not acting on a basis of old karma, they're not generating an identity out of their actions. So this is the actions of the awakened ones. There's no praise and no blame involved with it. So using speech as a practice, because um, why is so um, valuable is because it's we speak all the time. In fact, 
We're not speaking externally, we're speaking internally, we're talking to ourselves or chattering or commenting. This is going on quite a lot of the time. And all that also has an effect. Uh, and quite a bit of uh, internal conversation is really just there to perpetuate the sense of identity. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no other other function than to just fill up the space so there'll be somebody there, you know, with ruminations and curiosities, not necessarily evil, but just, yeah, yeah, fancy that, yeah, and this kind of stuff going on. It seems almost like talking to create somebody with a future or a past or possibilities, alternatives, uh, yeah. And that's the uh, you know, that's the nature of mind. It's to it does very much because it creates it has so much potential for alternatives of what could happen, what that reminds me of, what that means, what it should be, what he is, what what you know, it's going most of the time that it it uses up a lot of energy perpetuating a world of possibles and alternatives and speculations. What do people think of me? How am I doing? Uh, should I do this? What should I do about him? And this preoccupation becomes an identity. It solidifies around certain patterns of say, you know, anxiety, desire, and often self-measurement. What do they think of me? Am I okay? Uh, you know, <laughs> have I done enough? Am I doing the right thing? So there's this kind of self-judgment. Very, very common. Not necessarily harsh, but a pretty, pretty steady, you know, mirroring, self-referencing. Am I, what do other people think? And often that mirroring, you begin to see that there's a lot of, awareness of the potential to be blamed or seen as lesser. So that's always coming back. Am I not, not good enough? Probably not. Yeah. Or something. Very useful then to really get hold of speech. This this faculty, Vitaka Vichara, placing the mind, placing attention, and then evaluating, assessing how is that to get hold of it. Because if you don't get hold of it, it gets hold of you. Or the emotional tone that places attention. So, Vitaka, attention, is, mind is placed on a phenomenon, placed on something. Well, what places it? What wish, what habit, what places attention onto that obviously with some things it's very obvious you know we're looking for desirable sights sounds touches you know but how much attention is placed on this experience of self self-referencing and what does that feel like you try to get a sense of the tonality that's placing self-referencing um, I doubt if it's very pleasant or agreeable or comfortable or contented. 
because the whole essence of self-referencing is based on anxiety and uh, desire. I mean, if you're contented, you don't find yourself going, oh, I'm contented, I'm really contented, I'm really, oh, how contented I am. <laughs> oh, so it's, you know, it's always, of course, so this, you see, noticing what is it that places attention and what when one is assessing in terms of desirability uh, and so forth. Now, this self-referencing, this really is how the space in our mind contracts and what is generated is a rather nebulous but um, fluttering self moving along. Because the action that's generating it is a rapid placing of attention onto something that isn't there. Is placing attention onto something that what, what are you placing it onto? Onto a notion, of, say, of one's appearance or of uh, an estimation or a possibility, or placing it onto a notion of what we should be or could be or are or aren't. There's a notion we place attention onto. And placing attention onto something itself is, that itself is very nebulous in some respects, and the placing of attention is driven by um, unprofitable um, moods. What, what's the result of that? A rather nebulous, unprofitable self. <laughs> not very stable, not very steady. Um, and then it seeks to be stabilised by something that will hold me together. Could be another person, could be something out there, could be something I can get buried into, you know, something I can fixate upon. And so all this seeds the contraction and the clinging which restricts one's awareness into a mode that never satisfied because it's it's like we're not fully opened we're into a contracted space and so we've lost you could say we lost half of what you are if you look at it colloquially so you can't be satisfied with that in the open state uncontracted and that's and that's so, since we have to acknowledge that the uncontracted mind, as long as we're not awakened, this is very much the kind of experience we're going to be having, can we use this process of vitaka, vichara, placing attention and evaluating, assessing, which is the, the action of thought and speech, can we use it in a way that will help to... Um, move out of the contracted state. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the beauty of speech is, uh, yes, this is, can do, because now when you, when you speak, 
if you speak accurately, there's a possibility of speaking not to just a notion in your head, but to a, a person or another mind. Right? So you've got something a little more uh, stable to get feedback from. If you're just talking to your own head, your own thoughts, there, everything's moving around. So, you know, and the Buddha gave many, many examples of uh, speech training. Why is the training this? Because the accumulations of speech, the habits of speech are so um, ingrained, we're very literate, so we read a lot. We pick up the media, we pick up the language, we pick up even the attitudes uh, of, of the society or the family or the workplace. So we start, we become, they call it education, but it's actually a kind of indoctrination into the concerns and the energies and the modalities of a society. Generally, it's purposeful business model, get things done quickly, and so forth. Um, you don't hear a lot of talk about equanimity or contentment or letting go. It's mostly about making more, getting things done, and so forth. So the very language one uses shapes one's mind. One starts speaking in this way. And as you speak in this way, the results of that speech are coming back, shaping your mind. You become the way that you speak becomes you. And as we know, we can pick up biases, prejudices, false assumptions, nationalism, racism, all kinds of isms you can pick up just by being small and learning learning the language, learning the attitudes, uh, domineering or uh, whatever. Yeah. And nowadays, of course, there's a huge amount of speech with... Uh, Media, I don't know, television channels and radio channels and websites and Twitters and tweets and Facebooks and with tweeting everybody else. And so, and it seems that with that, this kind of speech, which actually it just goes out into the thin air, all the boundaries of responsibility are gone because there's nobody there. You just throw this thing out into the blogosphere and it could be anything. Abusive, deceitful, violent. You know, it's called free speech, which means irresponsible. It, they call it free. It's free of responsibility. <laughs> That's the only freedom. The freedom to say whatever, it doesn't matter how it's related to truth or not. So we, and we hear all this stuff, you know, and pick it up. And so a good amount of this is just so that you don't need to because, um, this will definitely, it's going to have effects. Uh, so you learn to refrain, not just in speaking, thinking, but even bringing these things to mind. And there's some reflections. Of course, the Buddha gave many um, talks on speech, the four kinds of right speech. Four kinds of wrong speech to um, deceit, 
whether it's kind of mild deceit or gross deceit, saying things that are not actually true. Uh, divisive speech, gossiping, sets people against each other, backstabbing. Uh, harsh speech, cursing, reviling. And pointless speech, just babble. Um, so, you know, these are definitely the wrong kinds of wrong speech that you, you need to be aware of. Because there's often um, some sort of, there's a bit of self goes on with that. We can, you, we can be deceitful in a way that gives us an advantage. I can get away with this. It's not it's not entirely true, but you know, it's okay. And so you build up you know, speech that in heightens and is there in order to to grant more power, more value to oneself. Um, divisive speech it means we I can kind of influence others and get somebody I don't like get other people to go against him or her divisive speech yeah. harsh speech I can stab people with it gives me a sense of power knock them around push them out of my way with the harsh speech uh, whether it happens or not but that's these are the motivations and uh, pointless speech is just I can fill up other people's minds with my stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's putting it crudely. I don't think people necessarily think like that, but these habits do heighten and prioritize the self over the mutuality of experience. And what we're looking for, you know, simple reference to the uncontracted state, the open state, is it's mutual. There's room for others in it. There isn't some big fat self holding it all together and occupying it there's room you know it's receptive it's open uh you know and therefore there's there's possibility of learning what isn't known uh, uh receiving what hadn't been understood uh, being corrected uh being supported because somebody else can come in there you don't have to just bury yourself in your own misery uh somebody else can reach in there and uh Living in this mutual state is, I would say, the norm for Dhamma practice. And at least you're getting some handle on this self-experience. And then you know, cultivating. So then the Buddha said, well, this way you, you, you generate friendships where there weren't friendships. And you say things that are worth listening to. Because they're worth listening to because... Where does where does a thought come from? Now, if we're in a mutual state, then on that basis, where one's thinking will come from, where the thought will arise from, is from the mutual basis. So, I'm not saying something just to prove how smart I am, or, or I've got it better than you have. I'm trying to say something from the sense of, well, 
there's you know three other people, five other people, a hundred other people, one other person. How is it for her, him? I don't know, but my, I I want to be open to that and you know present something that would be you know valuing that my mind can enter their mind. That's phenomenal, really. You know that we, my my mind, my, my experience can enter that person. Therefore, it should be something that's worth putting in there <laughs> to be for their advantage. <laughs> right? You know. So we we pause quite a lot of pausing and checking and where am I coming from? You know. So really, with speech involves and what it develops is a lot of, I say, you know, self-awareness rather than self-reference. Difference being that I'm not kind of like referencing myself, trying to firm up my impression of what I am to make myself more solid. I'm aware of this is how my self-experience is happening now. Uh-huh. And I'm prepared to moderate it. And self-referencing, you want to firm it up. This is really what I am, and everything that this self is seeing is true and valid, and I want to operate from that. That's self-referencing. If I have an opinion, I just want to make sure it happens in that way and convince other people. That's self-referencing, and it's a great opinion. Self-awareness means I have an opinion. Uh huh. How's that feel? And uh, when's the right time or place to check out how valid that is? Right, so because you're operating from a place of mutuality, so self awareness and other awareness. Now, other awareness, of course, we can't really exactly know the mind of another, but we at least bear in mind that it is another, and it's not just what I see with my eyes. You see some shape, uh, you don't know what's going on in there. So wouldn't it be nice to maybe just ask or check or how are you or is it right time? A bit of negotiating contact. Is this a suitable time, place? Got something I'd like to maybe float past, check out with you at some time, you know. Negotiation. The motivation then is not that my self-reference is affirmed, but that the qualities that I'm experiencing, is it possible we could both look at those and mutually shape them or review them or discard them because they're just qualities. (laughs) They're not some intrinsic self-essence that I am. They're just, some of them, happy to discard them, you know. (laughs) Give me a hand if that's necessary, because we're not basing uh, or making status or position out of dhammas that arise. That's that's the whole point, isn't it? So, you know, the Buddha has some remarkable skills of speech, and he recommended, he said, well, I think this is in the Anguttara Book of the Fours. 
It's the Numerical Sayings, Book of the Fours, 183. I don't say that anything you see should be spoken about, nor that what you see should not be spoken about, and same for what's ever heard, felt, sensed, etc. But when if talking about what you've seen gives rise to skillful states, then you should find the time and place to say them. If it gives rise to unskillful states, you don't have to talk about it. So there's some recognition of the potency. So this is why it's so valuable to build up this meditative training where you begin to be much more fully aware of not just the, the thought itself, but the emotional tone. You know, I'm a bit agitated or peeved, you know, something's annoying me, or I'm a little bit impatient, or I want this to happen, or, you know, I've really got a deep concern for somebody's welfare. And so then you've got some way of, of framing things up. But another interesting um, reference to the Buddha's speech it's where he goes through a whole series of criteria. He says, if something's untrue, I don't say it at all. But if it is true, if it's agreeable, sounds nice, it's enjoyable, but it's not profitable, I don't say it. So, like, you've got a great hairdo. <laughs> you may like that, but what's the point of that, you know? Doesn't go anywhere useful, really. Uh, true, disagreeable, and not beneficial. Yeah, it's true that you, you know, you, you know, you can't do maths or your spelling is terrible, or something like that. But, but is that beneficial? You can't write or you can't drive well. Uh, if it's unbeneficial, you don't speak about it. True, disagreeable, but beneficial. It's true. You don't like it, but it's for your welfare. He says, the Tathagata knows the time and place to mention this. Feedback. True, Beneficial and agreeable, as the target knows the time and place to say this. So there's nothing impulsive. There's nothing just kind of bah. Knows the time and place. So there's always a that knowing time and place. What does that mean? He's not looking at the clock. It means he's aware of the space. I would say, using another metaphor. The relational space within which we're arising, where, where the other person's energies are, you know, the continuum that we're dwelling in. Very important. This is the reference of uncontracted awareness. Yeah. This is the right time. Too occupied, too busy doing something else. Can't give proper attention. Why well, it's said that you know one shouldn't teach the Dhamma to people who are in a hurry or. Um, preoccupied with something else or driving or because it's just the it's the wrong time and place.
think the space isn't there. Yeah. So one should only teach when there is that space there. Because otherwise the people think they get it, but they don't because their minds are not ready and prepared. So in a way it disrespects the Dhamma and it, it minimalizes the effect. And so it can give rise to the feeling that one has communicated or well, actually one hasn't because the person's mind wasn't open. So true, agreeable and beneficial. So this is things like appreciation. I really thought that was skillful. And beneficial because it's not saying you're a great guy, you're a fantastic person. What's that mean? But you say, I really thought I've noticed the way you dealt with that, 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 that person. I could see there's, you know, I really felt some patience going on there, some clarity, some supportive qualities. You give specific detail of what was helpful. That's beneficial. That means a person goes, oh yeah, right. Because often one doesn't even notice. You just do what you can. But somebody else points out, I could sense the sincerity there. Yeah, that's right. True. So you help another person to know themselves, to know themselves in a, in a dumber way, to know the qualities of their, their skillful states, to know them. So skillful, uh, it, it gives us back to ourselves. It gives the chitta. The other person helps you to see your chitta rather than to get into your moods and selfhood person personality mirror personality uh, image disagreeable knows the time and place yeah space what's the space it's the steadiness is a receptivity can receptivity be negotiated yeah where where am I coming from when I'm offering feedback? Am I just going to tell this person where it's at? You know, set her straight and da 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 da. You know, I've been, you know she's been doing this for you, really annoying me. <laughs> then that's that's not the time and place. Yeah. So therefore, one has to direct that speech internally. I'm annoyed. She upsets me. How am I with that? Why does it bother me? What's going on? Because she's frustrating me or she doesn't listen to me or oh, that's what it is. Go into that and begin to work with that until it's no longer a problem. Then, when it's no longer a problem, then out of respect, you say, look, sister, I realise, you know, for your welfare, um, bring something to mind because I feel that I'm concerned for your karma. Yeah. And you may not know this. And please allow me. You know, so out of respect for you because I think you should know. That's skillful speech, right time, right space because you are open. And your openness encourages the other person to be open. Whereas if you're I am this and you're that and I'm going to set you straight. You're not open. So the space isn't open. Right? And you can tell. You know, I'm talking about space. I'm not, you know, certainly that, that's part of it. 
there's not a lot of other things going on, but one's own mind is the primary um, determinant whether the space or not. If your own mind is not spacious, then there can't be the space. If your mind is contracted, and it can happen like this, uh, sometimes even good intentions. I really want you to be enlightened, you know, or, or get over your problems. So that a certain pressure to make you better or happier or more cheerful or more clear and really want you to get it. What am I doing? You know, I want you to be a certain way so that I will feel more comfortable. I will feel um, useful or I feel I've, I've had a good, you know, I've caused something good to happen. That's kind of not bad, but it's not noble because we're operating from a self-view rather than the baseline of uncontracted awareness, which means you don't have don't have to be anything. Um, you don't have to understand me. You don't have to respond to me. You don't have to be convinced by me. <laughs> I'm not searching for something from you. Therefore, uh, they want the relief of that. And just say what's, what's you know. And so one feels this is kind of where the Buddha was coming from. Um, like he would, if somebody asked, if it's the right time, right place, he'd respond. If it wasn't the right time and place, he wouldn't. If they didn't ask, he wouldn't. If they didn't, you know, sometimes he said, don't ask. You know, you don't want to know. Um, they say, well, tell us this. Look, don't ask. They ask me three times. Okay, you ask me three times, I'll tell you. And he, this is the bad news. There was this famous incident where these ascetics were asking. One was acting like a dog. That was his ascetic practice to act like a dog. The other one was acting like an ox, lie on the ground and you know drink out of puddles and stuff like that. And they said, "We're doing all this real ascetic practice. What's going to be the result of this?" Because they don't ask. <laughs> they, they asked him three times. He said, okay, well, I'll tell you, you know, if you keep acting like a dog, if you keep doing that, you'll be reborn as a dog. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, if, you, if you do it with some crazy idea that you're going to arise at some spiritual realization, then that's such a wrong view, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> I told you not to ask. So the Buddha, you know, spoke from not trying to set people straight, you know, which is one of our subtle kinds of, uh, of uh, wrong vitaka places of bias, and placing a certain bias, how we place our thoughts. You know. And because sometimes this isn't really very clear, it's so important to just try to open that negotiating space just to, well, this is what I'm, I know, clear I can get, this is what I'm experiencing. I'm, I'm feeling a bit um, 
anxious about you. Yeah. I'm feeling concerned about you. Therefore, so you just acknowledge it. Therefore, this is going to have some effect on how I speak. I'm going to try to make you know you better or something. And the other person, oh, you're concerned. Okay, I appreciate that. Maybe that itself is enough. You, know, you reveal yourself. Uh, this very important piece of um, self-awareness. You reveal yourself. That very act of doing so is immediately a communication. It immediately opens the mutual space because you're opening the most immediate thing that can be opened, which is your own heart. If you do that, the resonance of that is going to almost certainly going to have an effect when the other person opens, rather than you having to kind of push your way in. If it doesn't, then... Uh, Say, as the Buddha self remarked, um, it's difficult to underestimate the value of equanimity when dealing with such a person. <laughs> when you're dealing with such a person who is stuck, stubborn, unresponsive, unreceptive, opinionated, then you can't underestimate how important it is to be equanimous. <laughs> so bear that in mind. <laughs> you just, okay. Uh, and then you think, well, then the occasion is not here for speech. And this is all just this is being factual. It's not agreeable. You know, you might have a relative who you're really concerned for. They've got these terrible habits, and you've told them, and you're really concerned for their welfare, and you'd like them to change, and they're not doing it. And you still feel you want them to change because that's your cousin, sister, son, mother, whatever. And you really want the other. A lot of suffering goes on with this over what you want other people to be. You know, with a good idea as well. But still, it's not coming from the baseline of mutuality. It's, we're not on the same page. You know, so it's probably better to say, oh, you know, I, I feel a certain sense of uh, concern and, uh, and see what happens from there. Maybe nothing happens. And that's part of it, as the Buddha himself um, recognized he could only teach those who are prepared to listen. And there's a certain soberness and truthfulness about it. Uh, the target always speaks and abides in truth and if he doesn't speak that's truthful he doesn't speak because there's nothing worth saying the person's not open it's not the right time and place but his silence is still saying something about the nature of the field and it could if you get that then time to ask you need to open it so these are ways of considering speech certainly in, in talking with others because you might start speaking something and things start to move along just being aware of things like you know your energy levels what's happening you're getting a bit tense or tight 
or wavering yeah, or giddy. It's just awareness, self-awareness rather than self-reference. In other words, rather than saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm an agitated person or trying to be other than that, aware this is the agitation and uh, grounding yourself or even mentioning the other person. Do you think we could we go a little bit slower because I'm not quite getting this, you know, something of this nature? And certainly, and recognizing this is this is a kind of reference to remember to make available to the other person, like you say something and talk for a bit, and then is that clear? Did have I made myself clear with that? Not. Did you understand? Because <laughs> you know, have I made myself clear? Is that clear? So that you, you're constantly referring to the mutual space, and that if you do that, if you make that your primary duty to refer to the mutual space and keep it mutual, keep it mutual. How are you? Are you is this how's this working for you? Am I making myself clear? Have I said enough? Would you like more detail? Or have I said too much? You know? Uh, and, and a lot of times people just talk much too much. Um, so you want that? Yes, thank you, I have it. That's fine. And so there's this mutual space. Um, and this really helps to keep that vitaka vichara thought, speech, experience carefully held mutually referenced we support each other in that if i listen and say thank you i have got what you're saying put, oh great thank you for letting me know that you, that you understood me just help me help me i don't know help me and giving each other the opportunity to help each other and then this is just real, real, really beautiful to, this is the essence of Kalyanamita, where you use or enter into that relational field for the other person's welfare, certainly, but certainly for your own welfare, using the other person to um, find yourself or find your Dhamma, prune, strengthen, clarify, steady, uh, and then using the other person as a reference point to help that. We're using each other in that way. And this is the beauty of skillful speech, right speech, noble speech, and um, speech that leads to the ending of the person. <laughs> the freedom from the person, the accumulated history person, the old habit person, into something that is... Uh, boundless or uncontracted. So I have spoken a lot. It's one of the <laughs> I guess one of the snags of this situation. I can't I can't get the feedback <laughs> either by body language or any other so I just try to feel I've covered a topic in a fairly thorough way without extending for too long, but I probably have extended a little bit longer. And of course, uh, during this time, you're always 
well, to just get up and leave if you want to. <laughs> You've had enough. <laughs> but anyway, I'll conclude today. Uh, and thank you for listening and helping me to um, get some clear thinking around the topic or two. Okay.